You're listening to At Home in Oregon, a podcast about housing policy. I'm your host, Shelley Dennison. House Bill 2001, also called the Housing Choices Bill, was passed in 2019 by the Oregon Legislature. This bill seeks to increase the availability of housing options by requiring certain cities to allow new housing types in areas traditionally zoned for detached single-family homes. These housing types include things like duplexes and townhouses. The logic behind House Bill 2001 is that the current housing supply is prohibitively expensive for prospective buyers and renters. Increasing the diversity of the housing supply specifically by providing more of these middle housing types could make homes more accessible to more Oregonians. House Bill 2001 was promoted by a number of progressive organizations, such as Habitat for Humanity, the PDX Sunrise Movement, and A Thousand Friends of Oregon. It also got a lot of support out of larger Oregon cities. However, it was not without significant resistance. Almost 550 letters and testimonies, and at least one poem, were formally filed with the legislature. And of those 550, many came from private residents and individual cities against House Bill 2001. Perhaps the biggest concern expressed by cities deals with the removal of local control over housing development. According to a letter from Jennifer Ye, Eugene City Councilor, quote, The city of Eugene and other local governments should have the authority to, within the general land use planning framework created by state law, implement land use planning strategies that are tailored to their specific communities. Different communities experience different challenges and have different needs, and each community should have the freedom to plan accordingly. Today, I'm talking to Sean Edging, housing analyst for the Department of Land Conservation and Development. We're talking about House Bill 2001, the need for it, what it's anticipated to do, and some of the pushback it's been getting. We'll also talk about House Bill 2003, which is closely related to House Bill 2001. House Bill 2003 requires most Oregon cities to conduct a housing needs analysis and create a housing production strategy. So, uh, welcome. Thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, Tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Yeah. uh, So my name is uh, Sean Edging. I'm a housing policy analyst at the Department of Land Conservation and Development. Um, I work with a team of other planners. We're we're kind of called the housing team um, on the implementation, primarily on the implementation of two major bills that were passed in the 2019 legislative session. That includes House Bill 2001, which is all focused on kind of the re-legalization of middle housing. And the other is House Bill 2003 that kind of seeks to build on how we plan for housing statewide. Awesome. Uh, Did you go to school for planning or policy or anything like that? I did. I uh, attended um, Portland State University uh, and got my master's in urban and regional planning there. Um, After school, I spent some time in the private sector working on, you know, various code amendments, uh, various kind of housing projects, things like that. That's awesome. Really cool. Um, So let's start out talking a little bit about like the current housing situation Mm -hmm. and what's going on currently in the housing policy world that led to House Bills 2001 and 2003. So uh, what are the current concerns about housing supply in Oregon? Yeah. And, you know, what's funny is if you were to ask this even in 2019, you know, what's what's the current status of housing supply in Oregon? We wouldn't have been able to really provide you a very good answer because there weren't a whole lot of there wasn't a whole lot of information or studies done at that statewide scale giving us a picture of this. 
But uh, one of the things that we'll talk about kind of in this podcast um, is uh, a piece of House Bill 2003 that's called the Regional Housing Needs Analysis. And what that kind of piece uh, uh, of House Bill 2003 does is it directed Oregon Housing and Community Services to really do that kind of statewide study of housing uh, capacity and supply. Um, and kind of what they found, uh, you know, it's there's there's a lot of ways that you can characterize it. You can characterize it in terms of number of units, things like that. Um, I think the easiest way to talk to somebody about this is, let's say, if you were to take kind of the total need that we have in our state, you know, not just from population growth, but also the housing units that we need on the ground today for people who are cost burdened, for people who are experiencing homelessness, all that. Uh, if you were to try to build over the next five years to kind of make up for that deficit and accommodate new growth, we would actually need to double our current production rate and triple our, our production of subsidized affordable housing. So that would be kind of like the capital A affordable that's uh, actually subsidized directly by the government. Wow. Um, yeah, I hadn't heard that statistic before that we need to double our rate of production. Um what and I feel like this is kind of one of the million dollar questions. Um, how do you think we ended up with a housing supply shortage? That's a very complicated question. Um, and I think there are a lot of answers for that, not all of which are related to state policy, but some of which are definitely exacerbated by state policy. One of the biggest things that we have in our kind of goal 10 framework is we direct cities to estimate how much housing they're gonna need over the next 20 years, right? We say, you know, you're gonna uh, either do a population projection or you, you know, today, um, most, uh, are, they receive theirs from Portland State University as kind of a standardized population projection over the next 20 years. And then they translate that into a number of households that they will have to accommodate over the next 20 years. Now, one kind of critical flaw of that, um, uh, housing needs projection is it assumes at year zero that you don't need any housing, right? Your housing needs are already met. When we know that we already are existing on a kind of current shortage and there's no way to to plan for that in an H&A, there's no way to plan for that shortage of housing that we currently have. So we're always kind of in this hole and in this deficit and, and kind of continually digging that hole deeper rather than addressing it and amending it over time. But that's just one reason of many why we have this kind of underproduction statewide. Yeah, no, that's a great point. Um, you know, something I'm really interested in is kind of this tension. And it, sometimes it's a destructive tension. Sometimes it's a productive tension between public policy and what direction the market is going. Mm -hmm. um, so it seems like if I were, you know, a complete free market, you know, anti-public policy person, um, I should be able to argue that the market should have kept up with what people can afford and, um, you know, what the demands are for housing. Why do you think it hasn't worked out that way? Yeah. And I think the, the big thing when we think about um, kind of market production and public policy is that those two things I've always been kind of intertwined with one another. Public policy shapes what the market does and what the market produces just as much as the market, you know, shapes how we approach public policy and the policies that we put forward. One of the biggest challenges that we've kind of had in the state is not just with the how we've zoned lands to kind of accommodate a number of dwelling units, but we haven't really thought critically about the types of units that we want to build over time, right? And so we have a lot of policies in place that really tilt incentives for people who are building housing to build 
um, structures that are kind of larger, less attainable for the average household, more expensive, um, and they can still sell those, right? And that's that's kind of a reflection of the fact that some people really do have the money to kind of continue purchasing these homes. But at the same time, you know, our public policies haven't really kept up in seeing like, well, actually, are these are these very large single family homes what we need to be producing right now to kind of meet the demands of, of the households that we have in our community? Um, so it's it's a complicated question. There's a lot of nuance there and there isn't really a simple answer one way or the other in terms of, you know, free market this or uh, uh, public policy that it's it's really a careful balancing of incentives to to get the types of housing that we we not only need but also want to see in our communities. Great, yeah. Um, and speaking of public policy, uh, as you know, you mentioned earlier in 2019, the state legislature passed House Bill 2001. Uh, what's your elevator pitch for House Bill 2001? My elevator pitch. Okay, yeah. great. I don't get to step in the role of a salesman very often. <laughs> Um, I think my elevator pitch would be, you know, when we think about housing, uh, oftentimes our, our public policy for the past almost a century has really changed how we think about housing. Uh, specifically, oftentimes when you talk to communities, they often put housing into one of two buckets. Either it's a single family home or it's a multifamily apartment, right? Because that's all they've seen for, you know, years and years and years being developed. Uh, but the reality is there exists this wide diversity of housing types that exist kind of between those two extremes, uh, including things that, you know, you would look at them on the outside, you'd say that, man, that's a house. But then you'd be surprised to find that it's actually two, three, four units on the inside. Right. And the whole point of middle housing um, is that these these housing types were very common at the beginning of the 20th century, and they were kind of made illegal uh, right after the World War Two era. And as such, they've kind of you know, kind of disappeared from from your average neighborhood, but they provide a way uh, to not only kind of reintegrate and get a lot of different types of households back into neighborhoods rather than these kind of, you know, economically segregated neighborhoods that we've created today, but they also provide a really powerful way to kind of produce these these uh, housing types that are smaller, more attainable for say smaller households, uh, lower income households, um, and, uh, you know, largely happen at the scale of a house. It's 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 going to not really look like an apartment. It's going to more look like a house. So that's kind of the the idea that House Bill 2001 encompasses, re-allowing these kind of historic housing types that have existed in our neighborhoods since the beginning of the 20th century. Yeah. So one of the things that I, I'm kind of always struck by is how creative you can be with middle housing. Um, and like you said, you can almost be kind of sneaky with it. You can make something that just looks like a regular, you know, bigger detached single family house when in reality it's a triplex or a quadplex. Um, and there's a lot of architectural thought that goes into designing good middle housing. Um, so uh, one of the questions that uh, I get asked a lot in my position is, who was behind House Bill 2001? Who was promoting it? Who was pushing it for it to be passed? Yeah, the biggest um, kind of promoter and the sponsor of the bill of uh, House Bill 2001 was the Speaker of the House, Tina Kotek. Um, uh, from what I've what I've heard, uh, 
you know, kind of in her younger days, she actually lived in a middle housing type and had a lot of experiences with, with that and, and also has a very deep-seated concern about the housing crisis in Oregon. And I think, you know, I can't really speak for kind of the legislative intent, but, you know, when we think about our, our residential lands and having, you know, roughly 70, 80% of them locked up in single family homes, if we're trying to address the housing crisis, we really need to be using all the tools in our belt. It'd be like trying to fight, you know, uh, uh, a bad guy with, uh, you know, your left hand and your two feet, you know, kind of tied behind your back. It's, it's really hard to do um, without using everything that's in your toolkit. So, um, yeah, that, that, that is kind of the biggest promoter of, of House Bill 2001. Great. Um, I'm curious, uh, do we have any data or any even experience that we can draw on to predict the success of House Bill 2001? Yeah, in some ways we're kind of treading into um, uncharted territories because, you know, we're the first state that has done this, right? Oregon is the first state that has pioneered re-legalizing these historic housing types in kind of traditionally single-family exclusionary zones. And one of the one of the challenges of that is that because these aren't really built in a modern market context, we we don't know what it, we don't know what the the market dynamics really look like yet. That's going to take trial and error. Um, we do have the ability to kind of do you know pro forma, which is what developers use to uh, indicate whether a a project is going to be roughly uh, profitable or not. Um, and we've been able to use that to kind of help some inform some of our decision making. Uh, but the reality is it's going to take some some trial and understanding, all right, what's actually being built uh, and what are kind of the policy trade-offs of that so we can tweak how we approach middle housing to, to get more success in the future. So it's really going to be an iterative process. Mm -hmm. um, if we're looking at other, I guess at this point, Oregon's the first state to do something like this at a state level, uh, but looking at other cities that have implemented similar policies, um, do you think we could look at what they've learned, do you think we could sort of translate that to an Oregon context? Yeah, yeah. And one of the things that we, we are learning is that there is some inertia with the implementation of these codes. Um, Minneapolis in uh, 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 Minnesota was one of the first cities to kind of implement policies that allow duplexes and triplexes in kind of, you know, all of the, their single family zones. And one of the things that they're finding is they're not really seeing a whole lot of development of these housing types, like a very, you know, like you could count them on two hands, the number of development applications that'll come through in any given year. And part of that, you know, it's it's kind of, the question is what, uh, what are the factors behind driving that kind of, you know, slow trickle of, of middle housing types? Is it something related to the development code and standards that exist in the development code? Or is it other market factors like say, uh, uh, development finance, things like that, right? Um, you could imagine that if you were building, say, a fourplex, right, and you don't have the ability to, say, sell each of those individual units as, um, you know, fee simple kind of ownership, you know, so each person can own their home, your financing becomes a lot more difficult. You have to go for multifamily financing, which really incentivizes building much larger projects in order to, quote unquote, pencil or be financially feasible. So that's kind of one of the biggest obstacles that we kind of see in um, middle housing is that a lot of the financial instruments that exist for housing development don't really exist yet for middle housing because we, you know, there hasn't really until now been much of a market for it. That's really interesting. Is that the reason why um, Oregon's legislature is looking at 
I forgot which bill it is. I think it's one of the Senate bills this mm-hmm. summer looking at being able to subdivide a lot that a duplex is on. Yeah, it's called Senate Bill 458. And specifically what it allows is what's called a middle housing land division, which is, uh, you know, if, if, say, somebody develops a middle housing type under House Bill 2001, uh, they can submit a plat to a local jurisdiction and, you know, demonstrate certain things like that each of the units has their own uh, utilities, that they have reciprocal access and maintenance agreements, things like that. Um, and uh, uh, provide frontage improvements, all the things that would be associated with like a typical subdivision. And if they demonstrate that, they would be able to divide that lot and sell each of those units individually, which would hopefully help uh, kind of not just free up those financial instruments to build those types of houses, but also provide a lot of folks more attainable home ownership options. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, so let's jump into talking about House Bill 2003. Um, so could you explain a little bit how 2003 is related to 2001 and what exactly House Bill 2003 uh, is requiring? Yeah, absolutely. So if you were to look at House Bill 2003 back when these bills were being considered and adopted, you would think of House Bill 2003 as being kind of the paltry little brother of House Bill 2001. It wasn't really in, as part of the headlines and anything that really did talk about it didn't really talk a whole lot about what was included in it. but. The reality is this bill is going to have a much more lasting legacy and impact on the way we plan for housing than House Bill 2001 ever will. Um, And what what House Bill 2003 does specifically is it builds on our existing process for planning for housing. So um, Goal 10 is kind of our uh, part of our existing statewide land use planning framework that requires cities and counties, or, or at least cities, I should say, uh, to plan for and accommodate the development of housing in in various cities. And uh, uh, essentially what that plan uh, or what that goal has required of cities is to kind of inventory lands and think about zoning and whether they essentially have enough land zoned to the appropriate densities that they can accommodate growth over the next 20 years. Um, and of course, you know, looking at that from the outside, you'd say, well, I mean, that doesn't really guarantee that housing's going to get built, right? I mean, you can have land zoned to the appropriate densities, but there can be a variety of things that prevent housing from being built at all, being built at the densities that you anticipated, um, and uh, being attainable to people um, that you are trying to plan for, right? Being, you know, accessible and affordable to folks. And so what House Bill 2003 does is it asks or or requires cities of a certain size, cities above 10,000, to build on that process. So, you know, that document is called a housing needs analysis. It's really a land capacity question. And what House Bill 2003 establishes is a new requirement called a housing production strategy. And what this report uh, has a city do is kind of dive into that H&A and, and really think, what are we doing as a city? What strategies, tools, actions, and policies are we going to implement over the next, you know, six or eight years that really uh, encourage the development of these housing types and make it more likely that they'll actually be built rather than, you know, kind of zoning for land and then not really getting that development that we need to have happen. So that's kind of the major piece of House Bill 2003. Another thing it does is it requires cities to kind of go through this process once every either six years if you're a city within the metro or once every eight years if you're a city outside of the Portland metro. Um, uh, Because, you know, a lot of cities had had kind of these really old housing needs analyses on the books and they weren't really relevant to today's market conditions. 
Um, and then finally, and this is kind of the thing that I work the most on, is a pilot or prototype uh, analysis. It's called the regional housing needs analysis, um, which, as I've kind of mentioned previously, requires OHCS to do this prototype study where they divide the state into various regions. They estimate the housing need for those various regions, and then they allocate that down to cities and counties. Um, uh, and, and the intent of this was for not only to get a statewide picture of what housing needs look like, um, but to ask us at DLCD to evaluate this methodology and ask the question, well, what, what does this teach us in terms of how we can better plan for and accommodate housing under goal 10? Great, yeah. Um, are there any standards or requirements of things that cities will need to have to include in their housing needs analyses or housing production strategies, or will it be just whatever the city feels fits their situation? Yeah, so housing needs analyses are very well defined, not just in statute and administrative rule, but also through case law, right? So there's a lot of existing kind of uh, uh, prescriptions for how cities approach housing needs analyses and what, what the kind of specific methodologies they can use there are. Um, and House Bill 2003 didn't really change that. It just required it to happen on a specific schedule. Um, housing production strategies, on the other hand, we uh, at, at the agency at DLCD um, with our commission, the Land Conservation and Development Commission, underwent a rulemaking process to kind of clarify, well, what exactly does a housing production strategy entail and, and include as part of it, right? Um, and through that process, we've kind of identified a number of uh, uh, gaps that we have in our goal 10 planning system that we really wanted to address as part of this document. Um, one of which being that, you know, when we plan for housing, we often overlook the needs of folks who have very salient housing needs, say housing for people who are experiencing homelessness, housing for people experiencing a disability, um, you know, housing and housing disparities based on race and ethnicity, um, as well as housing for people with very low incomes, people as they age, et cetera, et cetera. These are often things that were kind of optional to really think about in an HNA. And so we wanted to codify that you actually think about that as part of a housing production strategy and that you uh, try to in ensure and think about how your strategies that you adopt uh, uh, achieve more fair and equitable housing outcomes. There's like an entire section dedicated to that. So the administrative rules kind of provide all of these additional clarifications of, all right, what is what does an actual housing production strategy document look like? And what are the full breadth of issues that you need to cover uh, in a housing production strategy look like? Yeah, I want to talk about that equity piece mm -hmm. in uh, housing production strategies. Um, you mentioned that, you know, the salience of race and ethnicity when it comes to having access to housing. Um, mm -hmm. You know, we know a lot of the data that uh, black families, families uh, on average have uh, fewer opportunities for wealth generation than white families. Um, and we know that there's a really long history throughout the 20th century of policy after policy after policy that um, either made it impossible or incredibly difficult for black families to uh, buy homes and move into the neighborhoods that they wanted to live in. Mm -hmm. um, so how does House Bill 2001, House Bill 2003, and this equity piece and housing production strategies address race specifically. Yeah, and I think the the important thing to, I wanna kind of pre-emphasize this response with is that there, it would be tempting to, um, for people to think of, you know, House Bill 2001 and House Bill 2003 as the solution for addressing, you know, um, racial and economic disparities and how we've planned for housing. But the reality is it, it isn't, it's a start. Um, 
uh, specifically what House bills kind of 2001 and 2003 do is they start asking us to stop ignoring this issue, stop treating uh, housing and housing disparities as something that isn't really intertwined with equity, isn't intertwined with um, kind of our history of racial and economic segregation in the United States. Um, but it's not trying to purport to be the solution for those those particular issues. But it is it is requiring us to think about them more more dis distinctly. Um, so I'll start with House Bill 2001. And to understand what the impact of House Bill 2001 will be on racial and economic segregation, you have to understand the kind of racial and economic uh, or the, the history that surrounds the single family exclusionary zone. So if we were to kind of rewind the clock back to the early 20th century, this is around the time when many cities began adopting kind of these uh, explicitly uh, explicit racial ordinances that, that specified where people of specific racial and economic backgrounds could live in a city. And that was something that was eventually knocked down by the Supreme Court. I believe the case is Buchanan versus Worley. Um, and after this point, a lot of the policies started gearing towards um, the policies that on their face remained racially neutral, achieved very inequitable outcomes. So a good example of this is if you were to look at the establishment of the single family home, uh, uh, a lot of that happened with federal policy, you know, the establishment of the Federal Home Association, um, as well as kind of the introduction of this mortgage, you know, the 30 year fixed rate mortgage. And at the federal level, a lot of these opportunities were specifically closed off to communities of color, um, specifically preventing communities, communities of color from, say, purchasing homes in areas, say, uh, affluent neighborhoods, areas where a lot of white folks lived, things like that. Um, and additionally, also prevented uh, banks from providing loans in uh, communities of color, areas that were traditionally, um, you know, uh, populated with uh, communities of color or people with low incomes, right? This was a practice known as redlining back in the day, and it kind of worked hand in hand with the single family exclusionary zone to really segregate people um, based on income and race through racially neutral policies. So it created this kind of divide between, you know, single family detached neighborhoods and multifamily apartments that really separated people without any kind of need for, you um, uh, you know, uh, uh, specific racial ordinances. Mm -hmm. And so what House Bill 2001 does is it's that first kind of saying, it's that first addressing of it by saying, we have to do something about the single family exclusionary zone, right? It's kind of, it's it's not racially um, discriminatory on its face, but it kind of reinforces these patterns of, of uh, racial and economic disparities that we see in our housing market today. So we need to start addressing that. And one of the ways we can do that is by re-legalizing um, a lot of kind of historically allowed middle middle housing types in these neighborhoods. Yeah, that's that's great. Yeah, H House Bill 2003 is a little bit of a different animal. Um, so in recognition that our kind of housing needs analysis process was uh, did not really address issues of racial and economic disparities directly, uh, uh, the housing production strategy started off on on a on a um, less of a footing, right? Because if you're basing a housing production strategy on your H&A and you're not really thinking about racial and economic equity, you're not going to get equitable outcomes as a result. So one of the things that we kind of built into this administrative rule is explicit consideration of these factors. You know, how are folks, uh, you know, communities of color affected in the housing market today? What challenges do they face? Um, and also what challenges do other 
kind of state and federal protected classes face, including you know people with disabilities, um, and at least starting the conversation to directly consider and start to address these in the policies that we adopt is is really the intent of House Bill 2003. Hmm. Yeah. Um, I. You know, that's that's really good to hear. I wrote my master's thesis on um, the salience of race in um, access to uh, healthy food and grocery stores. And I looked specifically at um, county food action plans uh, to see if they were race neutral or race affirmative. And my whole hypothesis was that uh, counties which were race of conscious, race affirmative, recognizing the salience of race historically in uh, who has access to healthy food and who doesn't, um, are more likely to be successful at meeting their goals than the ones that are race neutral. Um, and sure enough, the ones that pay attention, the ones that acknowledge the history, the ones that acknowledge how messy this is, are the ones that are more successful. Um, so knowing that that can be baked into these housing needs analyses and these housing production strategies it sounds really promising yeah yeah and it's something that we hope to continue too because you know a lot of the policies that we have on the books today still kind of perpetuate patterns of of you know kind of exclusionary land use patterns and addressing those are going to be a big piece of getting a more uh you know fair equitable and affordable housing landscape in the state yeah, especially in a state like Oregon, where uh, race exclusion is literally baked into our state constitution. Yeah, um, yeah for sure. Um, but you are familiar with some of the resistance that you're getting now. Oh, yeah. um, and I laugh about that because I work with one of the cities that is not too happy about House Bill 2001. Um, can you describe kind of what, you know, the the whether it's, you know, private residents or... Yeah you know, individual level cities, what resistance you're seeing from them? Yeah. So, and I've, I've actually thought, been thinking about this concept a lot because, right, you know, I mean, when we get down to uh, um, the the kind of provisions of House Bill 2001, it is a, a reduction in local control. It's, it's uh, specifically saying these bans on these housing types is not something that can be permitted. And, you know, not just are you required to allow them, you're required to meaningfully allow them in mean, in, in other words, uh, make it actually possible for them to be built in the first place. Um, and of course, you know, in conversations with a variety of jurisdictions uh, that we've seen kind of uh, varying political attitudes to, towards it, where some councils really are concerned about the housing crisis. They're concerned with the trajectory of housing and affordability that they see in their communities. Um, but we also understand that a lot of cities you know, they see this as uh, something that's coming down from the state that they have to do. Uh, and uh, uh, it's it's something that takes away the control that they have in their communities. And so when I'm thinking about what the, what the, the role of House Bill 2001 is, I think it's important to understand the, the history of Goal 10 over the last 50 years and, and how House Bill 2001 is a bit of an outcropping of that. So and this is a bit of a long story, so uh, I, I apologize for that in advance. But um, so one of the ideas behind Oregon's statewide land use planning framework was that uh, the ability for local cities and counties to really continue to self-govern and make d policy decisions on their own was was baked into the statewide land use planning program 
But the key was they had to meaningfully address these various goals. And specific to housing uh, and the application of Goal 10, their responsibility as kind of clarified in statute and administrative rule was, yes, you are permitted to, you know, zone lands and uh, apply policies, you know, that uh, uh, get towards housing development, but you are also required to identify and address the housing need of the residents that live within your city, right? So that there was kind of both a responsibility um, as well as the kind of flexibility and local control that came with that responsibility. And if you were to look at how this has been implemented over the last 50 years in terms of housing, there's a lot of uh, uh, you know specific things in statute and administrative rule that help define technically how a city, you know, how they calculate their housing need over the next 20 years, how they count lands, you know, whether a land is, is available for development or not. Um, but when we get to the question of, you know, meaningfully responding to identified need, there isn't a very good uh, or clarified framework for what that specifically means. We say, you know, you are required to meet the needs of all your residents inside, you know, in, inside your city. But if you were to look at the statutes and administrative rules, it doesn't really specify how exactly you're supposed to do that. And a, a kind of result of that, and a result of this kind of lack of understanding what the specific responsibilities of local governments, of regional governments, and of state agencies are to address housing, uh, a kind of consequence of that is that there's been just a lot of fighting between communities, within communities, about what specifically our, our responsibilities are to address housing and what we need to do to, to meaningfully address that. It's resulted in a lot of lawsuits, a lot of litigation, and a lot of finger pointing. And so House Bill 2001, I mean, meanwhile, at the state level, you know, the housing crisis is getting worse and worse year after year, and there isn't a whole lot of meaningful action happening really at the local, regional, or state levels to kind of address it uh, comprehensively. And so House Bill 2001, in, in my view, is somewhat of a response to that by the legislature saying, hey, nobody agrees on what the responsibilities are, so we're going to define that directly. This is what it is. It's House Bill 2001. It's, it's these housing types that you're going to have to allow in your cities, and we're taking away that element of local control because, you know, these responsibilities have not been met over the last 50 years. Um, and when I think about what the future should look like, right, I, I am definitely somebody who thinks that, you know, the, the housing crisis is going to require a variety of diverse solutions, and each community is going to have to approach it in a distinct way. But I think one of the big things that we need to address is the fact that we don't yet have these clarified responsibilities among local, regional, and state governments to address housing affordability um, for everybody, not just within cities, but, you know, within regions and statewide. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What is, you know, with those cities that um, aren't happy about, you know, a state housing mandate and are wanting local control, um, what kinds of things are the state or DLCD doing to support them? Yeah, so I think the big thing that we are uh, trying to do, especially for communities that, um, you know, feel that this, this House Bill 2001 is kind of a reduction in local control. First off, in the actual bill itself, you know, we provide kind of this very prescriptive path that enables a city to reach compliance with House Bill 2001. And in that path, 
we build in a lot of flexibility for cities to still be able to regulate the siting and design of middle housing types, very specifically kind of based on how they uh, uh, um, uh, regulate the development of single family detached homes in their communities. Because the point of middle housing is that it's supposed to look substantially similar to those uh, housing types, right? Um, and additionally, for say larger cities, we also provide kind of these additional avenues for flexibility. But in exchange for that flexibility, there's a responsibility for jurisdictions to really go and do the homework to demonstrate that, hey, this, you know, this isn't going to substantially limit middle housing. This is not going to cause unreasonable cost or delay to the development of housing. And here's our work demonstrating that we've really thought about this and we really think that these regulations are needed to uh, uh, ensure a, a good policy outcome. And I think when we think about the, the housing crisis statewide, I think one of the things that we need to think more critically about is how do we provide jurisdictions, you know, these kind of safe and, and well thought through pathways that say, you know, if you do this thing, you can very easily meet your goal 10 obligations, but we also wanna provide avenues that you guys can pursue local flexibility. But in exchange for that, there's gonna be an expectation that you demonstrate that you're meeting your responsibility in a robust and clear way. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, um, that's kind of the position that I'm in with the city that I work for is trying to figure out, um, you know, what room do we have to be creative and to um, meet the interests of our city council while also meeting the requirements of House Bills, House Bills 2001 and 2003. Uh, and also as a planner, wanting to make sure that the things that happen in, you know, in my city are the result of good planning. Yeah. Uh, so it's a lot of, you know, a lot of interests <laughs> to be met. Um, do you know any other states that are uh, looking at Oregon that are thinking of implementing their own similar uh, state level legislation? Yes. Um, so I was actually very surprised to learn today that apparently Nebraska implemented not the same thing as House Bill 2001, but a bill intended to increase the availability of things, including middle housing and just housing that's more affordable to everyday residents. Um, uh, additionally, I know that the, uh, I believe it's the state of Connecticut has been considering a lot of uh, just housing reforms at the statewide level to kind of reduce the uh, impact of kind of exclusionary zoning policies that have happened throughout, throughout the state. I think we're seeing a lot of movement um, on a lot of West Coast cities too, on just middle housing development in general. And even in our state, you know, with cities that aren't required to uh, uh, comply with House Bill 2001, we're seeing a lot of interest from them because there's all these resources available to start thinking about allowing these housing types, especially in those communities that have been recently affected by wildfires. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. So I, I want to ask you kind of a an idealistic question. Yeah. Um, if you had complete power and authority to enact one housing policy in the state, what would it be? Well, I guess I get to I get to do a little plug for um, what's to come this next biennium. So uh, one of our major conclusions of the regional housing needs analysis policy is that the way our goal 10 system is kind of constructed, House Bill 2003 is going to be a significant improvement over what what the kind of status quo was. But if we're really serious about meeting this kind of substantial need that we've identified in this this housing uh, this regional housing needs analysis, we're going to have to really think critically about how we approach goal 10 
and how we uh, clarify the responsibilities of local, regional, and state governments. And so one of the things that the legislature authorized in the uh, last biennium is kind of additional funding to do continued work around having conversations with folks around the state on how we approach goal 10 to turn it from something where we fight about what our responsibilities are and what what actions we should take to something where we can clarify those more directly and provide a more robust framework that more comprehensively addresses the total need of of the state rather than just kind of pockets within cities and and not even looking at the full scope of the problem so that that is you know this isn't really total control um that that I have, but it's something that I think is very important statewide for us to to think about because I think you know when it comes to addressing the housing crisis, we are going to absolutely need the buy-in of our local partners and and the the you know just the sustained work from all of our partners, local, regional, and statewide, to meaningfully address this issue. Uh, and so that's what I I'm actually most excited about. It's not really so much of a top-down you know policy that I would implement, but it's a uh, it's something that I think will be very important for uh, more meaningfully addressing housing need in the long term. This has been At Home in Oregon. You can find us online at athomeinor.com. There you can listen to previous episodes, learn more about these topics that we've talked about, and you can even consider donating to help support the podcast. If you have any questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes, you can send me an email at homeinor at gmail.com. I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to listen. Thank you so much. We'll be back in two weeks.